Um, ben. I can't help but notice, but actually being here is not a requirement of this class. No, it's I. I never make attending class a requirement. Um, actually, I do in film, um, but that's that's attending the actual films. Um, you're adults; it's up to you. Um, I don't see how you'll do really well if you don't come. Um, but you know, maybe maybe just being on the stair machine and listening with avid adoration to what you missed on the podcast um, will be fine. But um, it's a point of principle for me not to make class attendance um, uh, required. Um, it's your class, your education, and it's up to you. So thank you for noticing. Um, it used to be, I mean, that used to be, it used to be the case, that used to be the case for everyone. Um, and in the past few years, people write apologetic emails when they don't come to class. Um, and that makes me think that my colleagues are saying, why weren't you in class? But that's something that um, I don't require. Um, I think you should come to class, but it's up to you. Um, any other questions? All clear? All right, so what we're going to do is start by looking <coughs> at a couple of poems. Um, these are lullabies. And <coughs> oh, I haven't put these out yet. So um, here is a sheet which has Two, I'm going to keep one. Two poems by William Blake on it. Those are you should read those for tomorrow, assuming we get to them for tomorrow. But you should read them for tomorrow. That's the assignment for tomorrow. Read two poems, as well as reading um, uh, whatever we don't get through today. Um, to the right of that is a poem um, uh, frequently called "Lolly Lolly Like a Child" by John Skelton, who was um, an early 15th century poet. He was actually tutor, um, tutor of the tutor. He was tutor to Henry VIII when Henry VIII was a child. Um, and he was a priest, uh, not a chaste priest, um, but a priest and a poet. And um, is often regarded as the first, and probably rightly regarded, as the first poet that we read in what we think of as modern English. Um, has anyone taken Chaucer um, or read Chaucer ever? You've read, but um, in Middle English or in modern English, or in translation? Um, in translation. Okay, so um, back in the late afternoons of my college years, um, we all had to memorize the first 20 lines of the Canterbury Tales. Um, in Middle English, uh, and we actually all had to read Chaucer in Middle English. Um, and um, Ch Middle English, you learn to read fairly quickly, but it's very hard to understand when it's recited um, because it's sufficiently different from modern English that it's like going to see um, an urban Welsh movie or something. That is a movie where people are speaking English, but you still need subtitles. Um, so the beginning of the Canterbury Tales is one that Aprile with his shoulders sought the drucht of March had pursued to the water and bathed every vein in sweet liquor of which virtu engendered is the fleur, etc. Um, the usefulness of having memorized it is that you can then recite it when you're teaching many years <laughs> later. Um, and that is one that Aprile is when April with his shoulders sought with his sweet showers. The drucht of March hath pierced to the rota. The drought of March hath pierced to the root, etc. Um, Eliot, um, 
um, in the wasteland is actually um, begins the wasteland as an allusion to the beginning of the Canterbury Tales. Anyone know the beginning of the wasteland? Isabel? Yes. April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, um, doing something to dry roots with a little spring rain. I forget what it is, actually. Um, I, I strongly dislike Eliot, so I'm glad I don't remember. Um, but it's for Chaucer, it's the, the drought of March hath pierced to the root. Um, Eliot refers to that at the beginning of the wasteland, um, stirring dull roots with spring rain, the cruelty of April. For Chaucer, it's the wonder of April. At any rate, um, Skelton is really the first poet that anyone reads with pleasure who wrote in an English that you don't really need translation. You need some footnotes, but you don't really need translation to read Skelton. Um, so here's a lullaby by Skelton, um, often called with lullay, lullay like a child. Um, poems didn't have titles until really um, the 17th century is when poems started getting titles. Long narrative poems had titles, but lyrics, page-long poems, were not titled until much later in the history of poetry. Um, so if you look at the manuscript of this, which you can easily find on the web, I think if you Google it, the f if you Google the first line, the first thing you'll get um, is, a, is a facsimile of the manuscript. What you'll see is it's printed on a page, and at the end of the poem is simply, quoth John Skelton. That is, that's a way of signing the poem as being John Skelton's. This is what he said. This is what he wrote. Um, so we'll look. So that's the first lullaby. Next to it, it says, it says the titles at the bottom of the page is a cradle song, and the poems on the next page is by Yeats. Um, and lastly, um, Auden's lullaby, which is um, a very difficult poem, and I think the one we'll start with. Um, so we're not going to we're not going to read the whole thing right away, um, but we're going to think about. Um, the first stanza. Um, I somehow didn't um, manage the stanza breaks too well, so there should be a break between beautiful and bounds. That's a new stanza. Um, soul and body have no bounds. Um, also in the Yeats poem above it, that's in um, three quatrains, so there should be a break between mood and you. Um, so here's this poem, Lullaby. Have pe do people know Auden? Have people read Auden? Anyone in the class? Um, his most famous or most anthologized poem is probably the, the one called um, Musée de Beaux-Arts, which is about uh, Bruegel's um, painting of Icarus falling from the sky. Um, is this at all familiar, ringing any kind of bell? Yeah. Um, about suffering, it begins about suffering, they were never wrong, the old masters. Okay, if it doesn't ring a bell, that's fine. Um, it's, it's a poem everyone likes and is very much worth looking up. Um, he's also, if you saw Four Weddings and a Funeral, um, a poem of his is recited in that. Um, that's sort of where he's now still most remembered culturally. Um, this is one of his most famous poems, though. Um, I think it's hard enough to read um, that I'm going to ask one of you to read it. You weren't expecting it to go that way, were you? Uh, volunteer? Um, Justy. 
Lay your sleeping head, my love, human on my faithless arm. Time and fevers burn away individual beauty from thoughtful children, and the grave proves the child ephemeral. But in my arms till break of day, let the living creature lie, mortal, guilty, but to me, the entirely beautiful. Thank you. That was, that was just great. Um, you didn't think so, but that shows you're a good reader, because that was great. Um, okay, who is the speaker addressing? Who's the you in the your sleeping head? Just, you, you don't have to know. You can, you can hypothesize. His love. His love. Okay, good. How did you know that? Your sleeping head, my love. Okay. Yeah. Um, so what kind of love? In other words, who do you say my love to? When you say, when you say it's his love, what are you thinking? His wife. His wife. Okay. What are you thinking? I think it's his child. Um, what makes you think it's his child? Um, he mentions children, individual beauty from thoughtful children. Um, um, more, something about mortal guilty is, I guess, or seems kind of like an odd inverse reflection of innocence in a mm -hmm. way. Um, I guess it. I guess it could go either way, but something something about it makes it, makes it seem kind of parental. Okay, Gila. I also think that the title of the poem is a good indicator because. A lullaby is something that's typically associated with children. It's not something that you might really, you wouldn't sing a lullaby to a romantic partner usually. Um, do people agree with that? That you wouldn't sing a lullaby to a romantic partner? Generally. Do you agree with that? <laughs> well, you're, no, because you. I don't think lullabies are restricted to children. Yeah. It's, it's usually associated with children. Okay, certainly the title is making you expect a child. Um, Nick, were you. Um, I was actually going to say something similar, um, but also time and fever is burned away the individual beauty from thought, which is essentially what he said. And I don't think you would say that to like a wife. I think that would say you would say that to somebody who you're explicitly protecting. Okay, good. Um, ben, I think the reference to children and childhood in the book in the first stanza. I don't think he's actually talking to a child. I think it just adds to the sense of the mortality. The burning away of childhood is, you know, is a reflection of the burning away of life. It's not. I don't think he's actually talking to childhood. Okay, good. Um, Isabel. Maybe he's setting up the difference between um, a child dying and um, a grown-up dying. Okay, that, um, say more. A child. Well, I'm just looking at the um, the beauty. Um, time fever burn fevers burn away individual beauty from thoughtful children. But, you know, but um, this person he's singing it to is the entirely beautiful. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I just noticed. Okay, so that so if he's singing it to someone who's entirely beautiful, that makes the person does that that has implications for the person's um, age, child versus adult. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, possibly. <coughs> Okay, wait, so, so just tease that out a little bit. So still entirely beautiful, which is it still entirely beautiful or just 
plain, absolutely, entirely beautiful. I mean, just what are you thinking? I, 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 really, I'm just asking you to, to clarify what you've already said. To the person he's yeah. addressing. Um, the okay. Um, you see the person is dead? Or, or dying. Dying. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, remind me your name? Maya. Maya. Um, I think kind of the opposite way, since he says that uh, time takes beauty from children, mm -hmm. saying that the, like, the thing that he has in his arms is beautiful kind of implies that it is a child. Or, or they could be or um, forever a child. Forever a child. No, but it says, let the living creature lie. Um, unless yeah. it's the exception that Leon proves the, the yeah. rule, because he says, but to me. So it's a, a personal thing that seeing who he's speaking to as beautiful could make it a child or an adult. Okay. Um, Muriel? Um, I kind of read it as he's saying, like, the person he's speaking to is mortal and guilty, but they're still beautiful to the speaker. Mm -hmm. In that, like, while they have, like, grown up to some degree, I don't know if they're an adult or just, like, growing older and they can see it, but it doesn't matter to the speaker, is that they still have that innocence, that they're still beautiful. Okay. Um, yeah, Nick. Um, but in my arms till break of day, I feel like that's something more, it's a protective connotation, which makes it seem like less of something someone would say to a lover as opposed to a child. Okay. Um, on the other hand, spending the night with someone in your arms? It could, it could be co-sleeping. It could be a child, or it could be the other kind of co-sleeping that we call sleeping with. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Remind me your name? Clay. Clay, yes. Um, recently, my... my girlfriend's little brother has a bunch of baby books and I was reading them and there's this one about um, a, a mother who like rocks a baby to sleep and then and the baby grows up but she still like goes into the room. And, Does that love you forever? Yeah. I love that. <laughs> and and, and um, even when, he's, she's, when her child's a grown man she still goes into the room rocks him when she's, uh, he's asleep and so um, it could be that that like all children lose their individual beauty or something of it over a while, but um, to the mom or to the parent, it still exists in their child forever. Nice. Do you know the runaway bunny? That's an. Um, you don't. You should. Um, you know. You know the much parodied um, Goodnight Moon, right? Mm -hmm. So the same two people um, who did Goodnight Moon did the runaway bunny. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the illustrators of both, it's the same writer who wrote, I forget her name, but she wrote it, she wrote both books in half an hour each. Um, she was not Flaubert. Um, <laughs> but the books are great. Um, and then the illustrator, who died fairly recently, um, each one took a year to do the paintings for. Um, so the, <laughs> the disconnect between the amount of work the writer and the amount of work the painter did. Um, is astonishing, but both Goodnight Moon, even more than Runaway Bunny, the paintings are um, are really amazing, and um, they're they're much um, influenced by Fernand Leger. That is, they're influenced by by um, the first half of the twentieth century's um, 
great art, the kind of art the Rose Art Museum collects and sometimes tries to sell. Um, and um, But at any rate, the runaway bunny is a bunny says to his mother, I'm going to run away and um, I'm going to turn into, I'm going to metamorphose into various um, things to get away from you. And the mother keeps saying, if you do, the, the bunny says, um, I will become a fish and swim away from you. And if you and the mother says, if you do, I will become um, a, a fisher and I will scoop you up in a net. And um, so whatever the child um, gives as a way of escaping from parental clutches, um, the mother gives a, um, um, a response to in which she can get the child back. Um, psychoanalysts were actually very interested in this book when it came out. And they felt that it was actually a very important book because it um, was the child asserting independence, but securely knowing that no matter how independent it got, um, the mother would find a way to match that independence and still be there for the child when needed. Um, and so, so there might be something that the, the book that you that you guys are talking about sounds like it's a little bit like that also. That uh, oh, I will become a grown man and um, get away from you. If you do, said his mother, I will become an old woman and take care of your children, or something like that. That's not in the Runaway Bunny, but that's what's implied by it. Um, that no matter what the child does. Um, the parent will find some way to stay a parent. Um, so, is that what you're thinking is going on here? Yeah, well, it's like that. It's like not necessarily still stay a parent, but like still um, love. Still show love. Yeah, still show love like, like their child. Still see them as a child and, and with all their individual beauty. Okay, good. Um, that's a phrase um, Auden likes, individual beauty. He uses it in other poems. Um, and um, it, it's something uh, that, we'll, that we'll get to when we, when we get to that line. What's the first striking line, first striking word in this poem? Gila. I say human. Why human? Because of all the adjectives to possibly use, first of all, it seems kind of like sort of, I don't know what the right word is, like unnecessary or redundant. Like we kind of assume that he's addressing a person in uh -huh. the first place. So it just sort of struck me because it's, you know, he's clearly trying to make a point there. It's not like, oh, a nice adjective about how beautiful the person is who he's addressing. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Um, Nick? I think human also has this universal vulnerability to it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Maya. Um, and saying human, like, yeah, it makes it kind of apply to everyone either either it applies to everyone or it's like the context when you would like the opposite of human is like like superhuman or like a monster mm -hmm. um and so it's kind of making it more um i don't know when you think of someone who's not superhuman or a monster but only human is like fallible but like good intentions yeah yeah i mean you you are everything that you're supposed to be if you're human. Um, you, you haven't failed in some way um, if you're human. And it doesn't mean that you're um, perfect um, or that you can count on perfection, but 
you're not supposed to be perfect. I think maybe that's something that that also captures the sense of vulnerability that that people are feeling there also. Um, ben, was your hand up? No. Earlier, I mean, I, I just want to say, like, this we sort of had a debate going back and forth whether they're talking to a literal child or just a figurative one. I think he kind of means that to be a little ambiguous. Uh -huh. that maybe it doesn't really matter that you can insert yourself into the poem, whatever position you're in. It's okay. just watching the, the ephemeral beauty of a, another sleeping human being. Okay. Because he talked, he used the imagery of a lover in an instance. Mm -hmm. He means there to be kind of like a, a tension between. Yeah. All right. I think that's right. <coughs> um, but let's. Isabel. I, I don't really see how a, um, a child could be called guilty, so I think talking to someone who's grown and made mistakes can't be called guilty. Okay, so the word guilty. Um, so here's some of the adjectives that, that are applying to the addressee there's human. Um, what about thoughtful? Does that apply to the person he's addressing? Not necessarily. Not necessarily? Okay. So um, you would put thoughtful children as possibly or definitely not um, applicable, let's say, to her. Um, possibly not applicable. Um, okay, what about um, mortal? Yeah. Um, guilty, that's what Isabel brings up as suggesting not a child. I, I think the fact that guilty follows mortal makes it a part of it. I don't think the guilty, the guilt is, is separate. It's, it's tied to mortal. I think, I think he's saying that this, this person is guilty because they are mortal and that it's, it's, it's not that they've done the fact that you know, just as being human makes them what they are supposed to be, being alive makes them guilty of something. Okay. Um, so, is there another adjective you want to notice um, about about her? Entirely beautiful. Okay. Entirely beautiful. Ephemeral. Ephemeral. What about living? Not technically an adjective, but used as an adjective. Um, a gerundive, as we say. Um, so mortal but living, living but mortal, and guilty is there. Um, Gila? Well, about guilty, I think that it really could apply to a person of any age because once you, once you basically get out of infancy, everybody has consciousness, and even if we don't have, um, you know, full judgment until we reach a certain age, Look, children are really difficult, and they really try a parent's patience. And I could definitely see a parent calling a child guilty. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, Clay. Um, when I was in first grade, I, I, I kissed a girl on the playground, and I was really happy about it. And when I came home, my mom, mom asked me what I did today. I cried because I felt guilty about it. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, I think, I think guilt, I mean, I feel guilty all the time, and it's oftentimes for no reason at all. So it just, it's definitely just a part of being human and being mortal. It's just something universally applicable so that you could insert whoever into the world. Yeah, nice. Um, ben? Also, I mean, Ozzy lived in a, in a highly Christian environment. The concept of original sin in Christianity really ties mortality and guilt all into one and the same way. Um, does he ties them together, potentially. 
Does everyone know what original sin is? Um, so many of you are nodding, but not everyone. Can you explain it then? I mean, it's just the idea that by the nature of being human, we will die and we are fallen. As if, even if you're not, not, you're not guilty because you do something wrong, you're guilty because you're human. You were born this way. Yeah. The doctrine, do you want to say doctrinally, no, Sydney? No, I was going to say it's from the sin of Adam and Eve. Yes. Yeah. 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 That Adam and, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They ate the fruit, um, often called an apple. Um, they ate the fruit, and um, they fell. Um, and um, as Milton puts it in Paradise Lost, um, he, with his whole progeny, must die. Um, we fell with them. Augustine um, came up with the idea called original sin, and the idea is what they did was they became sexual beings. Um, they had sex, which was an evil. Um, and um, they made it the case that all human beings are conceived in sin. Um, the very fact that you exist means that you are the product of a sinful act, which you don't have to go there and think about it, but that's, um, that's the um, claim. And um, if you don't take that claim um, literally, um, it's nevertheless a really nice way of describing uh, describing what, let's say, will uh, will appear in Freud. But Freud is just codifying what people have known since the beginning of time, which is that to be a human being is to be um, is to have a conscience that is going to make you feel that you've done the wrong thing, because no one's a saint, no one's perfect, um, and to be a human being is um, one basic human experience that all human beings except the most extremely psychopathic will have is the experience of guilt. Um, not to have that experience of guilt in some way makes you not human. Um, if you don't feel guilt, you're not human. If you're perfect um, and you become you know, a perfect clergy person, um, you, if you were a saint, that's still, it would be bad not to feel guilt because you wouldn't understand the people you were supposed to be helping. Your saintliness would prevent you from um, helping them and you would become a kind of Puritan as in the Scarlet Letter. Um, someone completely inflexible and unaware of what it means to be a human being. That's what, that's what that would mean figuratively. For Freud, Freud says everyone has a superego. Where does the superego come from? Feelings of guilt. What does the superego do? Amplifies feelings of guilt. Um, but the idea is that just what Kafka in his story, in the penal colony, which is a strange Kafkaan story. Have people read it? Um, do you know what it says on the gates of the penal colony? That's no. okay if you don't. Yeah, yeah. Do you know as well? It says guilt is never to be doubted. Um, and that's first of all just a... Um, a slogan for a place of incarceration and punishment. Um, but the idea is that that's universal, that everyone feels guilty. To be human is to feel guilty. Um, I think we have one more minute. Um, human is the first striking adjective. What's the second? Faithless. Faithless, why? What do you make of faithless? In a way, that might be the, the word that you most, that most, most, crystallizes or focuses your sense of the poem. I guess my interpretation of it would be assuming that he is talking to a child um, 
you know, all this talk about guilt and mortality, I think he's really, he really has no doubt that this child sleeping and beautiful and innocent is going to go on and, and endure hardships and probably make mistakes and feel guilt. And so, you know, maybe that faithless army is saying, you know, well, as, as, a, as a parent, I should believe that you're going to go on and be perfect, but I don't. Okay. That makes me faithless. Okay, good. <coughs> um, guilt. I think faithless is striking because it's unexpected, because of the way the poem begins, lay your sleeping head, my love, and it's sort of a reassuring tone. It's like, oh, I'm always going to be here for you, and then you get to faithless, and it's like, well, wait a minute. He's starting to say, um, I should be here for you all the time, but I won't be because I'm mortal just as you are. Okay, yeah, good. Um, yeah. Um, I just actually have kind of a, a question about, like, generally what um, he's trying to say. It seems like he's kind of pointing out like the imperfections of humanity, um, but saying, but then celebrating them, like saying that those are like the, maybe even the best parts. I mean, is that does that seem accurate? I wouldn't. I'm not sure. I would say celebrating, but certainly feeling that those are the deepest parts, or that that fact is um, what leads to depth of human relationship. Um, a way of saying it is that mortals. <clears throat> Mortal beings have deeper, because they're mortal, we have deeper relations with each other than immortal beings could possibly have. Because nothing matters ultimately for the immortals, but um, everything matters for mortals. Nick, and then we'll um, stop. Um, I was just going to say that um, it's almost as if um, he doesn't believe that the subject is human because it's in the same line, uh, human on my faithless arm. It's like, I don't believe you're human. I don't want you to be human. I don't want you to die. Ha. Huh. Okay, nice, nice. Okay, what you should do for tomorrow is read the rest of the poem. Um, will we get beyond it tomorrow? Well, we're going to circle back to it. So read the, read the poems that are on the sheets here. So read the rest of Lullaby. Read the Yeats poem. Read the skeleton. Um, you may as well read the two Blake poems. Let me just tell you briefly what they are. Is that, Do people know that Blake wrote a book called Songs of Innocence? And then he wrote a later book, which is called Songs of Innocence and of Experience. And the Songs of Experience are, are um, remixes in a much more mortal, guilty, and faithless world um, of the Songs of Innocence. There's a nurse's song from the Songs of Innocence and then another nurse's song from the Songs of Experience. I've given you both of those. So read those as well for tomorrow. Um, and see you then. <laughs>